recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting a Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 4th. I think it's May 4th, right? 2013. Tonight we're going to present Against the Paul Bashers, Part 19. I know this is getting probably... Um, a lot of people might feel this is getting burdensome, but we started it and we have to finish it. We're going to have at least two or three more segments from from the um, the Clayton Douglas material. Sometime this summer, I'm going to put further presentations of against the Paul Bashers together, hopefully even sometime later this spring, based on um, based on statements and criticisms by W.G. Finlay and, and a new um, a, a, a Paul Basher who is relatively new to me named Scott McQuaid. I have to examine some of his material. It was just brought to my attention. Evidently, he thinks that Paul is part of some Illuminati conspiracy dating back to the first century, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's the people behind the Illuminati conspiracy who persecuted Paul of Tarsus and all Christians for 300 years. That's well documented in history. And we have no reason to just take all of um, Western history, ecclesiastical or secular, and throw it under the bus because we have an agenda. No, well, that's no. not honest. Well, if I'd have remembered that we were going to be this close to May Day, I might have suggested we do a show on the, the Bolsheviks and their horrible little May Day holiday. And it's kind of rich that Clay Douglas or, you know, Brother Nazariah or whoever the real author of this is calls Paul a Bolshevik when the real Bolsheviks are out there causing riots in D.C. and Seattle and advocating the destruction of the traditional order in our society. And like we said last week, Paul was trying to preserve what he saw as the traditional order against what he perceived to be a radical outside threat. So it's very rich that they would use the term Bolshevik to describe their opposition. Right, you're, you're being garbled right now, Brian. I'm trying to determine where, if, if, if it's on my reception or on your transmission, or, or somewhere in the middle with talk shoe. Uh, did you hear anything I said then about the Bolsheviks? Barely. This is um, part 19 of our series addressing the Paul bashing articles of Clayton Douglas. Here we shall commence with our address of Douglas's second Paul bashing article entitled Saul of Tarsus and his Doctrine of Lawlessness, which he published in the January 2004 edition of his Free American News magazine. Again, well, many of the arguments Douglas makes in his second article are just repackaged from his first, which we covered at great length. He does add some new material and raise some new issues. The material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters, Watchman's Teaching Letter number 103, which was published in November of 2006. Right. Well, again, just to reiterate a point, these documents that Douglas has put out under his name were publicly available in his Free American News magazine. So Eli James had all the opportunity in the world to realize he was dealing with someone who called Saul basically a lawless beast, and yet he wrote a book with him, and he's worked with him for years. And Douglas never once picked up that identity had anything to do with race, and that race was centered to our message. And 
Mr. James or Mr. November or whatever name he's using this week, he he never saw fit to correct Douglas for his Paul bashing. Well, well, right. I, I don't know if you know. I, I to give um to be fair to Mr. November, I I don't know if Eli knew the extent of Douglas's Paul. Bashing. I don't know if he was aware of the extent of Douglas's Paul bashing. At the time, I really don't know. I think that. Um, Do you write a book with someone before you know where they stand on certain key issues? Well, well, yeah, you're right. We should know. We should know the positions of of, of um, our coworkers. But I worked with Eli James for two years before he became a universalist. Right. I, I mean, it, it seems to me. People listen to our early programs and they say, when did he change? Why did he do an about face? Why did he make a left turn? And and I've been asked that by by, by some of my more thorough listeners and, and, and um, some long-time Christian identity adherents. Um, one of them was actually raised in Christian identity. He's a man who's a couple of years older than me, and, and he was raised Christian identity by his parents. And he he couldn't um, he marveled listening to the differences um, in, over the two year time period from from one end to the other. Right. Well, and, it, it was a shock to me too, and I've worked with Eli since two thousand seven. Well, well, that's you know Clay Douglas. It's possible Douglas is basically a chameleon in a lot of ways, and, and it's possible that Douglas. Um, developed his relationship with Eli without letting on to the fact that he ever published these Paul bashing articles. Uh, I mean, here's a man that, you know, he publishes these articles. I see him in an Eli James chat room on a program that I'm not doing with Eli four years later. And I called him right out. I called him right out and, and for his Paul bashing in that chat room. And, and we had a, a, yeah, you know, I blew the chat room up. That's the way I do it. And after I blew the chat room up, he um, it, it actually worked out in the end. He asked me to come on his program and discuss it, and I did. And when I went on his program and discussed it, I learned very quickly that he didn't know the first thing about the Bible, the New Testament, Paul of Tarsus, first century history. He had no clue what the hell he was talking about. He didn't know what to ask me in the interview he he really struggled with coming up with questions that were pertinent, and, and I think he probably failed. And and, and I I agreed a second time, hoping it would be better, and it was worse. So so the man is ignorant of, of the Bible. He's ignorant of Scripture. He has no business trying to be a Christian. And, and um, I, I don't know. Eli James is in a lot of ways a politician. And I, I, I would believe that Eli probably had no idea of Douglas's Paul bashing. Right. That's my honest opinion. If you're writing a book with somebody and they have publicly available articles under their own name that are diametrically opposed to the stance you've publicly taken, it should raise the issue, why haven't you done a little bit of background hunting and pecking on the, on the character you're about to write? Well, well that's right, and, and he probably should have. But he, he should have – what, what if Eli – himself wasn't so wishy-washy and speaking out of both sides of his mouth all the time, he, he would have realized that Douglas wasn't um, his cup of tea or, or, or fit for Christian identity right from the beginning. But somebody that can come into Christian identity um, 
write, co-write a book with a Christian identity pastor and then find out and, and be upset about Christian identity Christians being racist. Because Douglas got really um, disturbed when he found the extent of my racism. And, um, and basically the sad part there is that Eli James was not honest with Clayton Douglas about the nature of Christian identity before he got into the relationship with him. That should have been the immediate dividing point. Everything else is secondary. Right, and I would think in the first 10 minutes of, you know, Identity 101, you should pick up that it's a race-centric message. Well, well, absolutely. It's, it's exclusive to, to um, what we believe that the kingdom of heaven and, and the, 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 the narrative of the Bible, the promises of Scripture, the relationship of God to his people, that those people are white, that all of that is exclusive to the white Adamic race. And whatever you want to believe about the other races, their origins, their nature, is immaterial, they're excluded from these covenants and these promises. Absolutely. And you don't have to build a ministry, as Eli has done, you don't have to build a ministry to the other races. It's immaterial. They are immaterial. I don't care what you want to believe about their origins. I don't care what you want to believe about their destinies. Their destiny is obviously from Scripture, not the same as our destiny. And if you don't want to face the, the, the facts and the cold, hard truth, then just leave it alone. Well, the promise of the Bible and these promises are exclusively to our race, and that's it. Well, there's a covenant made with Abraham and his descendants, and if you're not of him, if you're not one of his descendants, you're just not under the covenant, and that's you know you're unfortunate. Well, oh, absolutely, and 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 if if you if you um, there's a lot of people in in, in Christian identity that, that can't help but have empathy for aliens. Well, well, they don't belong. So, so you shouldn't argue about it. You should just leave it alone. And he won't do that. He'd rather build a ministry that makes the, the, the um, identity message comforting to aliens and to half-breeds. And, and that's evil. That's evil. There's no comfort for them in, in Scripture. And, and at the least, one should be totally apathetic to the situation. That's where um, Clayton Douglas really got in trouble with Christian identity. What was he was involved with um, Eli James for for at least a year, probably closer to two, before he suddenly found out that identity Christians are bad because they're racists. He actually threatened to smack the hell out of me on one of his programs. I, I got the recording. I, I, I want to play it for him someday. That's rich. And, and <laughs> he was going to have motorcycle gang members assault you. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Okay, in the segments leading up to this point, Douglas first criticized Paul of Tarsus for asserting to have been crucified with Christ, where Douglas shows a clear lack of understanding concerning the relationship of the Israelite under the Old Covenant to his God, and to the laws of his God. Then Douglas reverts to his novel, 
where he placed Paul of Tarsus in the middle of the conspiracy of the Pharisees against Christ, which there's absolutely no historical or biblical basis to do, Douglas further shows his ignorance of the gospel by not understanding that Christ knew all along that he would be executed by the rulers in Judea. Here Douglas demonstrates his failure to understand the relationship of the Israelite under the new covenant to that same God. Would you like to begin? Reference 55C. Clay Douglas states, Paul says it is not really him that you see, that he was crucified, and it is not I but Christ living in his body. He is claiming that he is essentially Christ, and for this reason he is superior to all of Christ's disciples who opposed him at every turn. Since Christ lived in Paul, this Christ was calling the shots. The direction that the church would go in was now up, he omitted the word to, the dictation of a man who may have met Jesus only once, and then only to be rebuked for being an oppressor of the disciples. This I don't know. It's layer upon layer of of Crap. deceit and and ignorance mixed together, right? Well, Paul I think says, whoever wrote this would have to know better. Well, well, right. Paul says, "Yet not I, but Christ lives in me." And and Douglas scoffs at two Corinthians six sixteen, where Paul admonishes the children of Israel to separate themselves from the unclean races, not the unclean thing, as the King James conjectures come out from among them and touch not the unclean. The unclean is a reference to them, right? He quotes several Old Testament verses. He quotes Leviticus 26.11, Jeremiah 31.33, and Ezekiel 37.27, all right there. And he says, ye are the temple of the living God. This is a quote, uh, and, and based upon those scriptures, Ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Adamic bodies are the vessels for the real us, so to speak. The spirit which Yahweh gave to Adamic man, Genesis 2-7, right? Genesis 6-3. That this is so is supported by many scriptures, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 52, Romans 9, and, and, and in Paul's writing, of course, and, and 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is the, um, the vessel where, where Isaiah says in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 15, um, come out from among them, ye who bear the vessels of the Lord. He's not talking about people who are walking around with cups and bottles. Ye who bear the vessels of the Lord, that's in Isaiah. It's, it's not talking about people walking around with kitchen implements. It's talking about these Adamic bodies in which is the spirit of Yahweh our God. Well, we're told, too, that some people are vessels fitted for wrath and others are vessels fitted for glory. Well, well right. That's Paul's an illustration in Romans chapter 9. He's referring to that same thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he makes the analogy that in a, in, in a, in a, in a rich man's house or, or in a, the, the house of a, a man of estate, there are vessels of gold and silver and vessels of wood and clay. And, and if you're one of the vessels of gold and silver, you should distance yourselves from the vessels of wood and clay 
and and cleanse yourselves and and be fitting for all good works, right? But because nobody sets a, a table mixing those two sorts of vessels. It just is it's not proper, right? You you wouldn't sit people at a banquet and give half your 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 guests vessels of wooden clay and the other half vessels of gold and silver, you're actually insulting half of your guests, right? That's the analogy Paul was making. Adamic spirits having come from from Yahweh, Yahweh having imparted that spirit into our race, the, the only race in creation which has that spirit, we are part of and one with him. And, and Paul certainly understood and taught that the vessels which bear such spirits, which the prophet Isaiah and other prophets explicitly say that those of the children of Israel do, should be treated accordingly. What, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so Yahshua Christ himself is recorded in the Gospel of John says, if a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. If the word of God is in your heart, if you strive and seek to do his will, then the Christian must understand that God walks with him, that Christ is dwelling in you, that his spirit is joined with your spirit. All of this is straight from the Gospels. It, it's all straight from the prophets. If Clayton Douglas doesn't understand it, and, and he's not scoffing at Paul, he's really scoffing at Christ himself and, and, and the entire tradition, and, and he's rejecting Christ and the prophets, which, tall, which Paul taught justly and correctly. Douglas doesn't understand it, so he scoffs at it. Paul wasn't wrong to teach these things. Not, he wasn't wrong at all to teach these. This is basic... Um, Christianity 101. So the fact that Douglas fell apart in that debate slash interview with you, it reveals that he is not the author of this article. By no means could he have been the author of this article. And whatever clown wrote this article knows at least enough about the Bible to be able to write this article and to purposefully attempt to deceive people. So this article, I want to remind people again, it's not written through naivete and ignorance. It's not just some well-meaning man who doesn't know any better. This was written by a malicious man who wants to deceive you. Well, well, right. This is written by a malicious man who did know something about the Bible and who was not Clayton Douglas. It, it took that first program that Clayton Douglas invited me to where he was supposed to question me about Paul of Tarsus, and he really had no questions. And that's when I realized that he wasn't the guy that wrote these articles, that somebody else had to write these articles because he really didn't know what the hell he was talking about at all. And the person that wrote these articles has a, a modicum of knowledge about the Bible, but he doesn't know the story. He doesn't know the Bible. I think that he really doesn't know the story, because I think that a damn Jew wrote these articles. That, that's my, uh, my personal opinion. I can't prove it, but from the content of the articles, from the nature of the arguments, arguments like, um, oh, Jesus never wanted to die, well, well, a damn Jew must have written that. A scoffer must have written that. Somebody who, who would claim that the um, who, who would claim piety and knows nothing about it, knows nothing right. about it, right? That Jesus didn't want to, you know, he he wanted the cup to be taken away. Jesus is lost to us forever because he was murdered. 
Yeah, yeah, things like that. S- statements like that, which would be um, contrary to everything the Christians believe. Right. Or, no, or everything Christians should believe. Nobody with a conception in a Christian afterlife could say that Jesus is lost to us forever. Only a Sadducee could make that statement. That, that is the statement of a Sadducee who rejects everything spiritual, including the notion of life after, after earthly death. And then the appeal to false authorities, Marxists, socialists, homosexual ordaining, so-called bishops, Nietzsche. The Jew- Jewish magicians. <laughs> that Nietzsche and, 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 and um, George Bernard Shaw and clowns like that who who are antichrist who whose works are, are um who, whose works prove who who and what they really are absolutely they've got a bibliography and it's all marxists and jewish magicians douglas here is making the assertion that paul claims superiority over the other apostles and and that's absolutely absolutely the opposite that, that Paul claimed. Paul never claimed superiority over the other apostles. Rather, Paul acceded to the advice of the other apostles. He acceded where even though he came out on the top of the argument in Acts chapter 15 against those Pharisees who wanted to Judaize the, the Christians at Antioch, and, and that's what they wanted to do. That was the nature of the argument. Paul came out on top in, in that argument but nevertheless, he allowed Peter and James to make the decisions. He clearly acceded to, to, um, to, to the, the, the superior position that he recognized, which Peter and James had. He recognized them as his elders. And he again acceded to the advice of the elder James in Acts chapter 21 verses 18 through 26. He acceded to James's advice that he go cleanse himself in the temple, even though it was a ritual, and I believe at that time Paul would have rejected that ritual. Paul nevertheless acceded to the claim, made no, to, to James's desires, and made no contention, regardless of what he may have thought of it, he made no contention because he recognized James as his elder. And... and um, he undertook James' wishes and, and James's instructions, and he followed it. He, he never claimed to, he, he never rebelled against James. He did exactly what James wanted him to do, even though it led to his arrest at, with, with the, um, the the uprising of, of the, the the Edomite Jews against him in the temple. Conversely, Paul professed to being the least of all apostles and the least of all saints, not phony Roman church saints, but Saints being the children of Israel who accept the word of God, right, in the gospel. I'm sure whoever's writing this novel will claim next that it was false modesty. Well, well yeah, right. But because, because of his prior role in persecuting Christian assemblies, Paul admitted being the least worthy and the least of the apostles, and that's what he means, the least worthy, and, and the least of all saints. If the, um, if the church went in the direction directed by Paul, as Douglas claims, it would have been a pretty fine collection of assemblies. It would have never been a single overpowering Roman Catholic church. Paul never, never set the church in that direction. And, and we should probably maybe do another program on that. I, I have that in a podcast, a paper I wrote entitled Misconceptions of Paul and the Church, but perhaps we could do um, 
maybe something better with that along those lines and take it a little slower and, and have like, a, you know, a question and answer exchanges or something like that. So, so that, um, perhaps that information can be presented in a form that's even easier to digest than when I first presented it. It's, um, Douglas is an ignorant man. He's a liar of his own making. It, it's, um, Paul taught nothing in, in, in his epistles concerning um, ecclesiastical structure. Paul taught nothing which resembles what the Roman or even the later Greek Orthodox and Protestant churches became. Paul, not, Paul had nothing to do with any of that. Well, I'm sure whoever wrote this wants to blame Paul for all of that. Well, well, that's the mistake that that's the mistake that a lot of Paul bashers make. A lot of Paul bashers blame Paul for this Catholic Church monster that appeared later in history. If you go back and you read the writings of the early earliest Christian bishops, all of them who esteem Paul of Tarsus, and, and I'm talking about Origen and and Justin Martyr and Clement. All of the earliest Tertullian, all of the earliest Christian writers, if you read them all, you'll find no indication whatsoever, and they all esteemed Paul of Tarsus, you'll find no indication whatsoever of anything like what the Catholic Church became 600 years after Paul. Even the Council of Nicaea was over 300 years. It, it was close to, I'm sorry. It was about 270 years after Paul died that the Council of Nicaea was held. And Paul had nothing to do with, with, with any of their decisions concerning canon. Paul had nothing to do with any of their decisions c concerning um, the, the, what, what the later church would become. They started using the term Christian priest at the time of Eusebius and later at the Council of Nicaea, the term Christian priest is not used by Tertullian. It's not used by Origen. It's not used by, by um, Irenaeus. It's not used by Clement. It's not used by Justin Martyr. These early Christian writers did not use the term Christian priest because all Christians are priests. There is no such thing as a professional Christian priest who, 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 who collects tithes from people in exchange for the dispensation of sacraments. That stuff came 600 years after Paul. Paul had nothing to do with any of that. It's basically paganism transferred into Christianity. And none of it's Christian. Well, right now we have people such as Obama talking about how they're carrying on the legacy of the founding fathers of this nation and that all men are created equal, but that's not the legacy of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, and they wouldn't have anything to do with it. But they're not here to stop him from misusing their name and their legacy. We don't blame them for what Obama's doing in their name 200 years after the fact, though. Well, well, absolutely. Absolutely, but Paul, and, and that's a good analogy. Paul is being blamed for what corrupt men did three, four, five, and six hundred years after Paul wrote. That there's nothing in, in Paul's epistles which, well, once the language, some of the language has to be straightened out, right? First, that word church has to be straightened out. You, you know, the Geneva Bible, if you go read the Geneva Bible, the Geneva Bible doesn't use the word church. The King James, King James himself 
instructed the people who translated the King James Bible to use the word church. The Geneva Bible uses the word, the correct word, congregation, okay? The Geneva Bible translated in 1530, 1540 A.D. used the word congregation. Well, King James had them change that to the word church when they made the King James Bible. And what that allowed was that allowed the focus of God's grace and mercy to be transferred from the people to an organization. That allowed that bait and switch. The, the, the congregation is the, the, the basic unit of Christianity, not the church, which in the mind of the people, of the common people of today and for the last four, five, six hundred years, it really refers not to the congregation, but to an organization. That's what the King James Version of the Bible did. All of these clowns out there in the world who think that the King James Version of the Bible is the inspired word of God are deeply deceived. Because the King James Version of the Bible actually took certain Greek words and rendered them in a way to uphold a monolithic church organization and its control over the people. You could blame the King James Bible on that. You sure as hell can't blame Paul of Tarsus for that. And, and that's what these Paul bashers are doing. They're taking that, that problem and they're blaming Paul of Tarsus for it when Paul of Tarsus had nothing to do with it. Well, they know that. They're just hoping the charge will stick. If they throw enough false accusations, one should stick. Well, well, the charge does stick with the fools that read the King James Bible and imagine that to be telling them the truth. But the word ecclesia does not refer to an organization which is, is created by man in order to rule and tyrannize us. The ecclesia is the assembly of the people. The Geneva Bible got it right and translated it as congregation. Right. Reference 56A. Yes. Clay Douglas states, Jesus, brother, James, is almost entirely written out of the picture and is referred to quite disrespectfully and in a very revealing fashion by Paul, Saul, and Acts by a descriptive noun rather than by his name. Not that the slur mattered much to James. James continued to issue warnings about Paul. Now, now so, this is a charge by Clayton Douglas that can't be answered. It can't be answered because the slur doesn't exist. I'm sorry you were going to so say something. Referring to someone in a, as a descriptive noun instead of their given name, that's a slur now. And where are these warnings that James issued against Paul? Well, where is the descriptive noun? I can't find it. I can't imagine where in the book of Acts it is recorded that Paul referred to James quite disrespectfully by some sort of descriptive noun. I, well, I can't imagine where Paul could have said that. I, I can't imagine Clay Douglas can tell the difference between a noun and an adverb or a pronoun. Well, well right. There's no citation in Douglas's article, right? It'd be nice if he, if he would cite chapter and verse and tell us what the word is, but he's just hoping that, A, we'll take him at his word and believe him, and B, we won't question why he didn't cite the source, because if there is a descriptive noun, it should be very easy to print the word in the sentence. It should be just easy enough to give us a verse. What's the verse? What, what yeah. verse is this? Put the verse in there. That, that's Take why the Bible's book. broken up into chapters and verses, right? So that we could find stuff. Right, and well, if, if I write a bogus article and I say experts agree, studies conclude, 
the evidence shows, and I never go on to name these experts to cite these studies or to discuss the evidence. It's just an appeal to a false authority, and I'm hoping you're not going to call me on it. Isn't that what the Jews do on CNN and, and MSNBC and Fox and, and news programs like that? Experts agree. Gun control will reduce crime. Gun control will is, reduce violence. Isn't that what Jews do in the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal? <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's what the, the low-brow Jews do, the lazy ones, because the ones that are a bit more slick, they get false experts, and they actually cite people who claim to be experts, but they're not, where the, the lazy ones just say experts agree, and they never even list names. It's a, it's, it's, it's a move out of Jewry 101. It's something it seems almost every Jew learns in writing or journalism school. And here we have Douglas doing it, or whoever really wrote this. Well, well right. I, I'm, yeah, you know, the remarks that made in response to this, I, I think Clifton wrote them. I really do. It, it's not something that, that I think I would say. I, I wrote, notice again that Douglas makes no citation, and so he is either a deceiver or an idiot, right? He has to be one or the other. He, he has to be one or the other, right? And I think Clifton, I think this following sentence is Clifton Emmerheiser's interjection, where it says that if he could have made a citation, you could bet all your marbles, he would have waved it at us like a red flag. Yet, if perhaps Douglas is not an idiot, he certainly must think that his readers are idiots. And that's the truth. That that's the truth. If you're going to make an accusation like that, well, well, yeah, you know the whole that you could head off a lot of problems over that accusation by supplying the verse number that you're referring to, and it's not there. Well, there's nothing to cite. He's just hoping we don't realize that. Right. That, that's what I believe. Reference 56b. Clayton Douglas states, in regards to Paul's egotism and boastfulness, James wrote, if any man among you seems to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. James 1.26. So somehow this is a warning against Paul, because Clay Douglas tells us Paul's an egotistical, boastful man, therefore James's warning must be against Paul. Although, well, well, right, and, and that's something that the other put, that, that's what Graeber did. Graeber did the same thing. He took words, he, he took lines from James and Peter from, from their epistles, and he claimed that they were talking about Paul of Tarsus, that they were arguing back and forth in their letters. Well, they, I would think they would name a name. If you're arguing against Paul, you would say, don't be vain as Paul is vain. Well, well Graeber claimed that he would get his spiritual sustenance from Peter, and the second epistle of Peter fully substantiates the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. And Peter basically explains that, that if you don't understand Paul's epistles, it, it's not Paul's fault, it's because you are unlearned and therefore unstable. Oh, this is rich. I, 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 let me finish here. Quote, So the tongue is also a little member and boasts great things. See how a small fire can spread to a large forest, and the tongue is a fire. The world of iniquity among our members is the tongue which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. James 3, 5 through 6. Quoting Clay Douglas. There are further examples. Find them for yourselves. What, what a cop-out saying that the evidence is out there. Find it for yourselves. Well, well wonderful. I, I can write a book. It'll be an earth-shattering, groundbreaking book. 
I'll put forward my thesis, and I'll tell all my readers, the evidence is out there, go find it for yourselves. And I'll conclude my book on page four or five, and I'll sell it for $29.95. That, that's not how you make a case, though, telling them there are further examples, find them for yourselves. The well, well, now you're sounding like Jonathan Gray, that clown that supports Ron Wyatt. <laughs> and and just uses Ron Wyatt's bad name to make money, I guess. Well, that, that's what he's doing. If, if I told you, Bill, check it out. I, I have this great theory. Here's my theory. And you say, where's the evidence? And I say, find it yourself. Well, then I don't have a theory. I just have a speculation, conjecture. I, I have a, a, a dart in the dark, taking a, you know, a stab in the dark, just a blind guess. There are further examples. Find them for yourselves. Line for line, the debate matches up, point by point, through the admonitions of James regarding the wickedness of Paul. Yet still there are so many who will never choose to see that their master, Paul, was a murderer, deceiver, and imposter from the beginning. And still to this very day, nothing has changed. Wow, this is, wow, this is spectacular. If James actually thought Paul was wicked, don't you think he might have mentioned Paul's name once? If he was out there to warn people, it's, James is, let, let's go back here. James continued to issue warnings about Paul. Well, how can you warn somebody, if you want to warn the congregation in, in um, Corinth or in, you know, um, somewhere in Anatolia, wouldn't you have to name who you're warning them about? Right, you tell them, it's this guy, Joe November. He's the one that, that, that's doing this, that, that's trying to be, you know, bring bastards into the congregation. That, that's who's doing it. Yeah, yeah, right, you name names. Absolutely. Right. You, you don't send them a warning saying, watch out for deceivers, do not be deceived. And um, there may be deceivers trying to deceive you, but you, I'm not going to name the deceivers. Well, well, right. James's epistle it, is general advice. It, it's all sound of advice. I'm sure Paul would have agreed with every word of it. And in fact, when we did, when we presented the Graver material, and Graver pulled a very similar stunt, we did present many places where Paul's teachings and James's teachings and Peter's teachings agreed 110% that now James's epistle is clearly addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad and of course Paul is never mentioned in James's epistle and he's never referred to well, James well, is speaking in general to these people and he's speaking about no particular individual and and, and James one twenty six. Okay, let's look at James one twenty six. If any man among you, this is addressed to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. It's not addressed to anybody specific. It's not addressed to any particular assembly which Paul was teaching at, which Paul founded. It says, if any man among you seems to be religious. It, it, it's addressed to any man among those 12 tribes scattered abroad. It has nothing to do with Paul of Tarsus. It, it's, it's a ridiculous accusation. Yeah, you know, Douglas would have us believe that the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls is Paul of Tarsus, and, and we've seen the context. I, I, I actually, that's the program you missed, Brian. I actually sat and read all of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where that where that liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls is mentioned. And for Paul to be the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls, he would have had to have been in, in alive, and we're going to get 
to this and further on in this presentation tonight. Paul would have had to have been alive at the time of the prophet Micah and at the time of King David if he was going to be the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's, that's, that would make him the oldest person ever to have lived. Well, well, maybe, maybe Methuselah would have had him by a few years, but he would have been damn close. So is that the theory then? Is, is that the position that Douglas is articulating? Well, well, that's the position Douglas articulated, that Paul was the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls, even though the Dead Sea Scrolls, where I read the passages where that liar is mentioned and, and cited the scroll, which is something that Douglas didn't do, I actually can come up with the scroll numbers where the liar is mentioned. It, it's mentioned in, in the Peshers of, of Micah and the Pesher of Psalms and, and um, I, I believe the Pesher of Habakkuk and, and I actually gave all the citations, and all of that is spelled out in a couple of places on Christogenia.org, including in the paper William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. So, so all of the documentation is right on my website. The, the accusations are ridiculous, just like this accusation is ridiculous. And, and if Douglas is not being purposely deceptive, he's a total moron, because the context of James 1.26 is clear. And it has nothing to do with Paul of Tarsus. Well, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, these, these vague warnings. He's the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls. James is warning about him. Peter is warning about him. Yet no one wants to name his name. It's like, let's put out an all-points bulletin. Be on the lookout for a man driving a car. If you see this man or this car, contact the authorities. That is all. Thank you. Well, well, it's it's the same tactic Alan, Alex Jones uses. He talks over and over again about the Illuminati and never wants to tell us it's the Jew. Well, he did say Arabs own Hollywood and run the media. Yeah, I heard right. say it. maybe that's true. We'll, we'll have to look into that. Yeah, you know, Jews technically are Arabs, so he really wasn't lying. Right, but to his audience of laymen, that basically is a lie. Right, it's an absolute lie. So maybe he's the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, well, this is the nature of, of the Paul bashing material. All the Paul bashing material that I've run into to date is full of misrepresentations and, and slanders and, and false accusations. Well, what else do they have? Well, well right. That's the point. It, it's that there, there may be some honest people that are Paul bashers who simply don't know a damn thing about history or, or about the Bible. And 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 it's they subscribe to Paul bashing because it plays on their emotions. But but I can't understand how anybody could be a Paul basher if they really knew the Bible and the history of the first century. I I can't fathom it. I just can't. I don't understand it. I I could understand how some people might love the works of of another apostle better. But but why do we have to disdain one apostle to to um? To, to enjoy the writing of another one, it, it, it doesn't wash. It, it, I don't understand it. All right. Reference 57. Clayton Douglas states, Paul even admitted to theft and swindling churches. These are his own words. Quote, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Second Corinthians 11.8. So you see, it is nothing new when we see these charlatans and thieves stealing the money of those trying to do what they have been taught is right. When there are individuals making millions off the ignorance of the masses, 
using a religion crafted after the Pharisees themselves to psychologically enslave them to the status quo. Such thieves are only following after their master, Paul, who admitted to stealing from churches. So now the entire religion is crafted by the Pharisees. Wow. Let's see where the novel takes us next. Again, Paul does little to hide his true purpose from you, and yet most of you will continue to defend Paul, Saul, until your dying day. Why? Because Paul, Saul is a tradition. I'm wondering, does he actually read all of 2 Corinthians 11? I mean, what, what comes before this and after this? Paul's not, yeah, you know, Paul's not saying that he stole from churches, and, and that, this is, it, it's just like the, the King James failed last week, we discussed that, that, um, that scripture where, where Paul said that if he had um, burdened the assembly, that, that then he would have been capturing them by deceit, right? That there's an unfortunate, that there's a very unfortunate word in, in the translation of 2 Corinthians 11.8, because it could have been written better, but even though it's an unfortunate word, the discerning mind should understand that it shouldn't be taken exactly literally, where the King James says, I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. That's what Paul's saying. And in the Christogenian New Testament, it says, I have deprived other assemblies taking provisions for your service. And, and all Paul is saying is that the people that supported him, while this group of people over here may have been supporting him, he was ministering to another group of people. That's all he's saying. So he's saying that he deprived these assemblies because they were supporting him, but he wasn't ministering to them. He was, that while they were supporting him, he was ministering to these people over here. And that's clear in, in the book of Acts and, and in Paul's other letters where the, the people of Macedonia had, had been um, supporting Paul's ministry to a, to a great extent, and he was preaching the gospel, and, and he spent, I think it was a, a long time, it was like a year and a half, two years in Corinth, ministering to those people while the Macedonians had been supporting him. That's all he's saying. That, that he was get, being supported by Party A and ministering to Party B. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. that there's nothing, every Christian pastor does that. He, he, he gets um, a, a good deal of his support from people who he doesn't spend a good deal of his time ministering to. That, that's natural to, to, to the... To the um, the, the Christian ministry. It, it's just something that happens. It can't be that, that's why certain people support you, so that you can go minister to others. And, and that's what he's telling the, the, the Corinthians. He didn't burden them, but while he was ministering them, to them, he was being supported by others. That, now, Douglas is trying to take that word robbed literally, and it's ridiculous. It's, it's, a, it's another charge, which is empty of any real substance. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, can it be that I have made an error, humbling myself in order that you may be elevated because I announced the good message of Yahweh to you freely. He never took anything from them. 
I have deprived other assemblies. He was being supported by other people, taking provisions for your service. That's all he's saying. He was, he was being supported by Party A and ministering to Party B. That, there's nothing wrong with that. Christian pastors do it all the time. Make, right, it doesn't make, say he was robbing the collection plate. Well, right, absolutely. He wasn't going into their houses and holding a sword to their head and taking their money. Well, he's a Bolshevik who tortures people. So I'm sure next in the novel it's going to say that he linked up with some former Roman legionnaires that he had served with, and they, they formed a band of thieves, and they went around pillaging and stealing in the name of Christ. Right. It, it says, in being present with you and wanting, I had burdened no one. Indeed, and, and this substantiates what I just explained. I didn't even really know it was here because I didn't read ahead. Indeed, my need had been filled by the brethren who came from Macedonia. Paul was in Corinth, or, or writing the Corinthians and explaining what had transpired while he was ministering to them, while he was ministering to the Corinthians in Corinth, he was being, he, he was being supported by the brethren in Macedonia. And he said, and in everything I have kept and will keep myself unburdened, unburdensome to you. He was telling the, the, the Corinthians, hey, you, you know, I, I ministered to you at no cost to you for all this time, and I'm not going to burden you. That's and and that's natural to any Christian ministry. I I mean I I'm supported by a few dozen people that support my endeavors at Christagenia, and, and thousands of people every day download my podcast. But they they don't support my ministry. I, I mean I don't expect it, right? That that's the way it is. Right, but that doesn't mean you're hacking into people's bank accounts and taking their money. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the image, you know. Well, obviously not a hacking image, but. He's, he's conjuring up an image that Paul is walking around in the marketplaces, taking away people's per, you know coin purses and walking into their homes when they're not there and making off with the silverware. Well, well, right. He's taking Paul's illustration of his own ministry out of context and trying to use it as an indictment against Paul. The events Paul refers to here in, in, in 2 Corinthians are recorded in Acts chapter 18. Both Timothy and Silas were among the brethren who came from Macedonia, if you want to go read Acts chapter 18, that's what Paul's referring to in his letter to the Corinthians. This is recorded. Timothy and Silas were among the brethren who came from Macedonia who supplied Paul's needs. Acts 18 verse 5. Paul certainly did not rob the assembly in Macedonia. And he makes another visit there, in, 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 which is recorded in Acts chapter 20. That word rob just simply means to deprive. Yet you would, you know, in, in, in Christianity, what well, we don't do that. We, we're supported by, by a core of, of supporters, and, and we go out and, and we reach everybody we can and, and make the best that, that we can with, with, with that support, right? And, and that's what Paul was doing. He was being supported by the Macedonians and, and trying to... Um, to, to minister to the Corinthians. And, and that's natural, that there are many Greek words which mean to rob or to steal, and the word here, suleo, is to deprive, and that's what Paul was inferring. That's all he was inferring. If you wanted, you know, a, a lot of... Um, if you were just simply offering a service for money, that then you would be ministering to the people who are supporting you exclusively, right? I mean, that's if you cut hair, yet you're not going to take my money for a haircut, 
and, and go out and cut the heads of five other people, are you? That'd be silly. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, right. Christian ministry is not like other services. That's the way it is, and that's what Paul's trying to explain. Greek philosophers, there were schools of Greek philosophy, and Greek philosophers actually did teach their philosophy for a fee, and they collected their fee from the people that they taught. And to understand the culture of first century Greece would lead one to appreciate what Paul was saying all the more. Because philosophies, philosophers ran schools, and, and they expected to be um, replenished for their services. So you wouldn't really go teaching philosophy to people who weren't paying you, just like a school today. And, and, and Christianity at that time was tantamount to just another school of philosophy in, in competition and Acts chapter 17 in Paul's discourse of the Athenians betrays that very thing. It, it's Christianity was in competition with all of these other philosophies among the Greeks. But the philosophers, the people that they taught were the people that replenished them, were the people that compensated them for their time and, and their efforts. What Where Paul was being compensated by the Macedonians to teach the Corinthians. Well, well that, that's Christianity. That, that's the way Christian ministry should work. That's all these. And, and Douglas is chastising him for that. And, and it's nefarious. The charges are nefarious. And, and, and they betray Douglas's... Well, well, they betray the writer's absolute ignorance. Reference 58. Clayton Douglas states, Remember that Paul, Saul, taught that faith alone is your passport into heaven, contrary to the teachings of both God and his Son. Well, I, I thought Jesus is lost to us for all time, and he's been murdered and dead, so what's the point of heaven? If Jesus is murdered and dead, and he doesn't even get to go there. If, if even Jesus doesn't get to go to the afterlife because he's lost to us for all time because he's dead and gone, then how do we lowly mortals get to go into heaven and have an afterlife when Jesus doesn't get one? Because he well, didn't well want it to shows die. the nature of the author of these articles, right? He, he, it, it's like, well, like you were joking around the last few weeks about different writers what, with different attitudes and, and using different names for Jesus and different names for for the Lord and things like that. He's Jesus in one paragraph and, and he's Asu in another paragraph and Yesu in another. Well, well, it's the same thing. Basically it shows that the very splintered um, mind of the person that wrote this article or people that wrote this article, because they can't get it straight. In one paragraph, they'll have a, a, the, the attitude of the Sadducees and, and a virtual denial of, of the afterlife and, and the continued existence of the spirit. And, and here, they're talking about a future in heaven. So, right. so, so Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde wrote this article, right? Or there's a team of rabbis, and one was writing, and some six-year-old boy went by on a tricycle, and it was an opportunity he couldn't pass up, so he ran outside, and then the other rabbi sat down and finished the paragraph. <laughs> Right. I think the other rabbi would have been behind the first one. 
remember, yes. it's, this article, these articles were written by by Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. It seems like there's no doubt. But but this is Paul bashing. This Paul bashing material. So many people are taken in with it. I don't get it. That that they're very undiscerning. Could they be that blind? I don't get it. So. Christ is so powerless, God is so weak and pathetic, he doesn't want to die, but he does. So mortals are able to checkmate him and murder him, yet God is so powerful, he can get us into heaven and we can have an afterlife. Right. That, that doesn't make sense. Of course not. Remember that Paul Saul taught that faith alone is your passport into heaven, contrary to the teachings of both God and his son. And as we said, he's no longer Yesu, it's now his son. And he's not even Jesus or Asu or Asu Emmanuel. Paul's mind twist should read twisted these teachings. Wait. It, it, the, the grammar is horrible, right? It's Paul's mind twist teachings can be described in this manner. It, it's Paul's mind twist teachings. Mind twisted, mind twisting. I mean, this is bad, and it, and it stumbled me here because I don't know what he was trying to write. Paul's mind twist. Paul's Paul's twisted teachings can be described in this manner. Let us say that you wish to become a great ice skater. I, I thought maybe I'd want to become a great magician, but uh, we'll go with ice skater for now. You have great faith in your ability to become a great ice skater, but does that faith make you a great ice skater? Of course not. You must be faithful in your practice, faithful in your acts. You must train, train, train. Your acts, together with your faith, make you into a very good ice skater. So we went from a great ice skater to very good ice skater. Faith without faithfulness translates into an ice skater with many bruises and lacerations. Right, but if you're, tra if you're training hard at something you know nothing about, you're going to get those bruises anyway. So this is just a, it's a false analogy. His little illustration here is garbage. And he's comparing something of theological significance such as faith in God and faith in Jesus to wanting to be an ice skater. That's silly. That's petty. It's childish. Yeah, you know, Paul's idea of faith clearly included the performing of good works or deeds. We, we've already discussed this at, at length several weeks ago. It, it's um, I'll give an example. Titus 2.7 Paul advises Titus that in all things show thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil to say, no evil thing to say of you. And, and all of Paul's advice was centered around people doing good for for their fellow Christian, for their fellow brethren. Paul even said that a man that does not um, support his own family should, should, have, should be apportioned with the unbelievers, that, that you know, the man is basically worthless. It, it's um, time after time again in, in the scriptures, in Paul's epistles, he, he tells um, Timothy that the man of God should be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That, that we should do good for, for one another. He tells Timothy again in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute 
willing to communicate. Now, now a lot of this language is archaic. That, that word communicate means to share what we have with our brethren. That, that's what the word communion the real use of the word communion is, not, not the Catholic use of the word communion. And, and, and these words, that their meaning is lost. Being willing to communicate, as Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 6.18, that that's not that we should say nice things to one another. That that's not what that means. Ready to distribute and willing to communicate, that word communicate in Greek is koinonikos, and, and it means... The sharing of things in common, to be inclined, Paul is instructing his readers to be inclined to make our possessions, our wealth, our sustenance available to one another so, so that we all survive. That, that's, you know, Christianity, Christianity um, taken from, from the right viewpoint if you really understood Christianity, you would understand Christianity as a survival philosophy for our race. That's what real Christianity is. It's a survival philosophy for our race in the face of tyrants and the onslaughts of aliens. And, of course, Douglas misses all that. It's consistently admonished his readers to, to um, do good for one another. Well, so here, so Douglas insisting that his readers should remember something which simply isn't true. Now, now, Paul clearly states that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that every one, meaning every Israelite, may receive the things done in his, may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Paul understood and taught that we were going to be rewarded or lack a reward in, in the afterlife, in, in the next life, in the spirit, being judged by Christ and being held responsible for our bad deeds and rewarded for our good deeds. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So, so Douglas's ice skater analogy may be interesting, but, but Paul, teaching the need for self-control, said it 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, rather I beat my body and bring it into subjection, much like an athlete must do in order to succeed. And Paul tells Titus in Titus 3, 8, those trusting in God should take care to prefer good works. These things are good and advantageous to men. And surely Paul and James, where he explains the need for good works in James 2.20, did not differ in this teaching. They, they differed in their approach to the subject, there's no doubt. But, but you take any two men teaching basic arithmetic are going to differ in their approach to, to the subject. So, so Clayton Douglas is basically a liar again. Reference 59, Clayton Douglas states, Saul of Tarsus had to believe that faith alone and not his acts would get him into heaven. He had to delude himself. After all, Saul was a mass murderer, correct? And he, he asked the question without exploring it, so I guess we just have to take him at his word, and we, he's expecting the audience is so stupid, let's answer yes and move along. 
I find it incredible that the very same people who volunteer to personally strap David Westerfield into the electric chair because he murdered the little Von Damme girl are calling for complete forgiveness of genocidal trickster Saul Paul because he's anointed. And who made the announcement that Saul Paul was anointed? Why, that was Saul Paul himself. One might ask, under the laws of the Old Testament, wasn't, why wasn't Saul Paul ever brought to justice for his mass murders? One might also ask, can you find any scriptural passages in which Saul Paul, no, now he's Paul Saul, Paul Saul, apologizes to the <laughs> apostles or to anyone for his horrible crimes and murders? I, I also wonder why under Roman law wasn't he executed as a deserter from a legion? And interestingly enough, this um, David Westerfield is still on death row, so no one has strapped him into any electric chair. Maybe Clay Douglas wrote letters on his behalf, get him a reprieve. Maybe he had a, a pen pal section on Arlene Johnson's website. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. But no, I don't think he's dark enough for that. The, the um, yeah, you know, it's already fully evident that Douglas it is um absolutely misrepresenting Paul's positions regarding faith and salvation, but neither does um, Douglas understand the Bible on, on faith or salvation. And, and since Douglas's premise is wrong, everything that follows is going to be wrong. Yeah, you know, first, Paul was certainly no murderer. Douglas takes the same position and, and has the same mindset that the Jews had at the insistence of Chain Wiseman to conduct the um, the kangaroo Nuremberg war crimes trials against German leaders, right? That men who performed the will and the functions of their government under the laws of that government, which is what we explained that Paul, Paul of Tarsus had done to the Christians in Damascus when he persecuted them. He, he was only following the, the will of his government under the laws of that government. Whether we agree with those laws or not, Men that do that are, are, are not held personally accountable for that. And, and, and never have, I mean, well, well to the victor, the, the victor writes the history and the victor decides what's right and wrong, right? Well, well um, how many war crimes were performed by, by, by American soldiers in World War I and World War II that well, were under the rug, right? The Nuremberg well, war crimes trials were a war crime, basically. The victors never put themselves on trial. Well, right, exactly. Paul um, very nobly stopped supporting his government's cause and stopped persecuting the innocent whom he had one time supposed to be rebels. He supposed those people to be rebels. That's why he joined in, in, in their, their um, arrest and trial. It, it wasn't anything like Nuremberg. Paul murdered no one. While his government was wrong... Paul and surely many others within it thought when, when those things were transpiring that they were doing the right thing. And, and we see that today in, in the tyranny that we live under, that a lot of these government employees actually believe that they are doing the right thing, even though we know they're wrong. That this same circumstance has existed all throughout the history of our race right down to this very day, and we shouldn't take these things out of context in order to indict any particular individual. When we do that, we're no better than the damn Jews at Nuremberg. Right. Well, you know, you, you said they believe they're doing the right thing. How many people of our race in particular will wake up 
realize they're doing the wrong thing and consciously do it anyway. I mean, how many people want to take part? All the time. They they justify it because it's their job. Right. They justify it because it's their job. But Paul realized he was doing the wrong thing, and he withdrew from what he was doing. He did the noble thing. Now, now, Clayton Douglas insists that Paul never offered an apology for his persecution of Christians. Who would he apologize to? Well, well right. Even though it, what Paul was doing at the time was lawful under Judean law. Now, Peter commended Paul, and, and Peter wasn't wanting an apology. The apostles received Paul in Jerusalem on two occasions, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 21, and evidently they were not wanting an apology. So who is Clayton Douglas to insist that an apology had never been made? The outlines, the events outlined in the book of Acts cover a period of about 30 years. And and in a very short space, they're hardly a complete record, right? Uh, I mean, it's a very scant record of certain events over a 30-year period. Paul's 14 epistles are certainly not the only epistles that he wrote, that we can prove there were several others. And these which we have were all written towards the end of that 30-year period. They, they were all written probably from 45 B.C. and later, which is, again, hardly a complete record. So, so who is Clayton Douglas to say Paul never apologized? And, and I'd like to get into that at length. The American Heritage College Dictionary defines apology like this. An acknowledgement expressing regret or asking pardon for a fault or offense. That's what an apology is, right? Or it's a formal justification or defense, an explanation or excuse. Okay, that's the, that, that's the dictionary definition of apology. An acknowledgement expressing regret it is what's most pertinent here. An acknowledgement expressing regret is, is where we're probably going to focus the, the verb apologize, to excuse or regretfully acknowledge a fault or offense. Again, to regretfully acknowledge a fault or offense is the key definition here in the verb apologize. Number two, to defend or justify formally. These English words came from the Greek words apologia, which is a speech in defense and the verb apologiomahi, which means to speak in defense, to defend oneself, to explain. So an apology is not uttering I'm sorry. If you, utter, if you say I'm sorry, that's not really, that, that might be an explanation of regret, but it's not really an apology. If you say I apologize, well, well that doesn't offer the substance of the apology. Right? Uh, I mean, the apology is the explanation or, or the acknowledgement expressing regret. The words, I apologize, they're not an apology. As we're accustomed to this hollow form of apology today, but saying I apologize is not an apology without the acknowledgement expressing regret or asking pardon. So, so, so I apologize is kind of hollow. It, it's, it's, um, it, it's just an excuse for an apology, right? So if Douglas were to say about this article and why he put his name on it, I apologize, well, he would have to explain why he's apologizing. 
Well, well, right. The apology, the substance of the apology is actually the explanation and acknowledgement of one's actions, which don't even necessarily have to express regret, because an apology can also be to defend or justify formally, right? So, so it, it's what we have to look at the, the substance of the apology and determine what it is for ourselves, right? Paul's persecution of Christians... While Paul's persecution of Christians was done as a function of legal government, the legal government of Judea at the time, where Paul said that he arrested these people, he brought them to the temple, and, and cast a vote as to whether or not they should be convicted. Okay, we see an actual jury trial involved here. And that's the language that Paul uses in his apology. An apology is not necessarily in order because Paul was functioning under a legal capacity and in a legally functioning government. Whether, whether we agree with it, with the government's function or not, is immaterial. It was a legally functioning government and it was a legal operation, right? And an apology, therefore, is not necessarily in order. Yet we shall see that some of Paul's later statements certainly fulfilled the criteria to qualify as an apology. Paul's arrest in Jerusalem happened about 57 AD, Acts chapters 21 and 22. About 25 years after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. At his defense before the people, Paul acknowledged his persecution of Christians, Acts chapter 22 verses 4 and 5. Guess what? That's an apology. The acknowledgement and expression of regret. The expression of regret and the acknowledgement of the act. That fulfills the dictionary definition of an apology. Paul was then sent to the governor, Felix, and over two years later, in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, Paul spoke about Christianity before Felix, the successor, and, and I'm sorry, before Felix's successor, Festus, and Herod Agrippa too. And here again, Paul acknowledged his persecution of Christians, Acts chapter 26, verses 9 to 11, admitting all of his errors in what may easily be perceived as a regretful manner. That's an apology. That meets fully the dictionary definition of an apology. Paul seems to have written his epistle to the Galatians about 54 or 55 AD. He wrote it probably from either Macedonia or Ephesus. In Galatians 1.13, Paul acknowledged his persecution of Christians, which he had done many years before time. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was also written about 55 AD, and it was written from Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul states, for I am the least of all apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the assembly of God, 1 Corinthians 15.9. Here we have an acknowledgement expressing regret. That meets the dictionary definition of an apology. Who the hell is Clayton Douglas to say that Paul never apologized? He apologizes four times over 25 years after. How many times can we imagine that he apologized over that 25-year period? That, that's ridiculous. It, it's, here's a, 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 a clear accusation by the Paul Bashers, which can be easily disproven four times. Clayton Douglas, who, whoever wrote this article, is a deceiver and an idiot. Well, they're hoping that the readers are too stupid to call him on it. 
Well, well, right. But, I mean, it's so simple to prove them wrong. It, it's so simple to make them look like fools. That's Paul bashing. That, that's the substance of Paul bashing every time. Every time the Paul bashers will be proven wrong. Every time. But what about this Jewish magician who says this thing about Paul? What about him? Right. Well, well, this next section is worse. All right. Reference 60. Clayton Douglas states, This prophecy mentions Paul by name in the original Hebrew. The Hebrew did not use diacritical vowel markings. In Hebrew, the word for Hades or the grave is Sheol, meaning simply the netherworld. Sick. He again makes an error. He, he called it the neither world. It is not synonymous with hell, which is Gehenum, or the pit. The name Sheol and Shaul, or Saul, as English renders it, are identical terms in Hebrew. So now Paul's name translates to hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, give, I'm sorry, give me a second here. I just... Wow, that 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 that's a that's an incredibly low blow. That Sheol S H E O L in the English, and then Shaul S H A apostrophe U L apostrophe, or Saul as the English renders it. And they want to talk about the original Hebrew. If I'm not mistaken, the New Testament was never written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. Well, well, right, but it's tr it is true that the names are are, are spelled the same in Hebrew. That that is true. That the names are um, that there are two ways to spell Sheol, and one of those ways is spelled the same way that Saul's name is spelled. That doesn't mean that he's some sort of demon from hell who took this name to warn. Oh, okay, here we go. Oh, he, he, he makes the accusation as well. To those who understand the true origins, nature, and identity of Paul, they will understand the full prophecy of Habakkuk. As relating to this figure, who all the prophets since the time of Noah have warned their people of. In an interpretation of the above, Habakkuk 2.4, the Dead Sea Scrolls found only 50 years ago in caves near Jericho, tell us its interpretation, concerns all doers of the Torah in the house of Yehuda, uh, Judah, whom El, God, will save from the house of judgment, because of their works and their faith in the teacher of righteousness, Habakkuk Pesher, 7.17 and 8.3. The teacher of righteousness, or righteous teacher, leads a messianic movement befuddled by the spouter of lies, who leads many astray in order to build his city of vanity on blood and erect an assembly upon lying for the sake of his glory, tiring out many with a worthless service and instructing them in works of lying so that their works will be of emptiness. And they will be brought to the same judgments of fire which, with which they insulted and vilified the chosen of God. Habakkuk Pesher 10, 9 through 13. So Paul is really going by the, you know, he, he's named Saul because it's a warning. Where they be warned, he's a demon from hell bringing ruin with him. That, that's really rich. Well, well, right. It's terrible. And the truth is that Paul's name and the word for Sheol both come from a common root. But they're, they're not necessarily the same word, even if they're spelled similarly. And, and I'll explain that shortly. 
that the um, first Douglas's article fails to mention it, it refers to this prophecy, but it doesn't tell us what prophecy exactly that it's talking about, and, and it's it must be talking about Habakkuk chapter two verse five, and I'm going to repeat it here from the King James version of the Bible. Well, if we're going to um, start throwing stones at people's names, Clayton is derived from clay, so Douglas is telling us that he's a man of clay. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, well, clay comes from cow dung, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I thought it did. I, I mean, uh, okay. Habakkuk 2.5 from the King James Version of the Bible. Yeah, also, because he transgresses, transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. Neither keepeth at home who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathers unto him all nations, and heaps unto him all people. Now, Douglas here asserts that the word hell in Habakkuk 2.5 should basically be substituted for Paul, right? that this is a, a prophecy about Paul. And I must comment that it is odd that Douglas cited Habakkuk 2.4 rather than 2.5, and, and, and um, 2.4 ends like this, the just shall live by his faith. So how could Douglas pay so much attention to one verse yet despise the other? Because, because he has condemned Paul for citing Habakkuk 2.4, right? Well, this is just like reading the first part of Isaiah 13 and stopping. Right. I know somebody that does that. It's deceptive. <laughs> stopping halfway through the, through the, paragraph, through the chapter. Well, right? when you get to one verse and then your eyes glance down a line and you realize, oh, crap, that's going to overthrow the doctrine I'm trying to build. I better just go back up a sentence and stop there. Right. And, and that's extremely deceptive. Well, well, here we have it. You know, Habakkuk 2.4 says the just shall live by faith. Um, Douglas condemns Paul for teaching that, and, and then he goes on to use to to abuse Habakkuk two five in order to condemn Paul. Let, let's read Habakkuk two five from the the Greek Septuagint to see how the early it, the language is difficult, but but hell to to enlarge his desire is hell and is as death. Well, we see that hell and death are being used in, in both as metaphors for the same thing. So, so basically, hell is equivalent to death and not equivalent to a person, right? Uh, I mean, you can't, a person is not really equivalent to death. If, if a third object is being compared to them both, that, that's really taking the word hell out of context here, right? So let's read Habakkuk 2.5 from the Greek Septuagint to see how the earliest translators understood it. And this is from Brenton's translation of the Greek. But the arrogant man and the scorner, the boastful man, shall not finish anything, who has enlarged his desire as the grave. That's how the Greek writers understood that, that um. It, it's the word grave is Hades, which could be also the underworld, but that's what the Greek translators imagined it to be talking about, what, which is what Sheol means. And like death, he is never satisfied, and he will gather to himself all the nations and will receive to himself all the peoples. 
Now, the word grave, here is the Greek word Hades, and Brenton chose to translate it grave rather than underworld, right? Which is okay. Now, taken out of context, I could see where Douglas may want hell to read Paul in the King James Version. But let's read Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 from the Septuagint. It says, Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a proverb to tell against him? And they shall say, Woe to him that multiplies to himself the possessions which are not his. How long? And who heavily loads his yoke? For suddenly there shall arise up those that bite him, and they that plot against thee shall awake, and thou shalt be a plunderer to them, because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the nations that are left shall spoil thee, because of the blood of men and the sins of the land and the city and of all that dwell in it. So reading the entire prophecy, it is obviously incredulous that the subject of verse 5 could be Paul of Tarsus. Because that, the subject does not change through verse 8. And the subject of verse 8 certainly cannot be Paul of Tarsus. It's not possible if we read the entire prophecy in context. The subject of this prophecy is surely the arrogant man and the scorner and the boastful man, which is here an epithet for Satan the adversary in a collective sense, the children of the devil who have plundered every city and every nation throughout history. That is what Habakkuk is talking about. It's not talking about Paul of Tarsus. That's ridiculous. We've seen that the Peshers in the Dead Sea Scrolls used the epithets, and this is the program that you missed a couple of weeks ago. The Peshers are, are interpretations of the prophets in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And they use the epithets, man of the lie, man of lies, or spreader of the lie. And that these terms were used to describe Satan, or the adversary, and not Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus wasn't alive in the days of Habakkuk. He wasn't alive in the days of Micah or in the days of David when this man of lies and spreader of the lie is being labeled as a contemporary in those, in those prophecies. So they couldn't be referring to Paul of Tarsus. We discussed this at length just two or three weeks ago here. Right, so these clowns would know that, though, wouldn't they? Well, well, they should know that. We discussed all. I illustrated, I elucidated from the Dead Sea Scrolls, giving the citations, all of the peshers where these epithets were used by the Qumran sect, and I discussed all of them, and not just this one verse in Habakkuk, which Clayton Douglas is attempting to excise from its context, in order to mold it into his twisted theory. It's evident that Douglas, there's no limit to his subterfuge. There's no limit at all. Now, now another aspect of the, which can be taken account here is the grammar of Habakkuk 2.5. Whether we examine the King James or the Septuagint, the phrase, as the grave, or as hell in the King James Version, is an adverbial clause. And an adverbial clause can by no means be the subject of the sentence. Even if it did say, as Paul, 
which, which is what Douglas desires it to say, right? So, so he doesn't even really know anything about grammar, who, whoever wrote this. Douglas's plot takes advantage of the fact that in Hebrew, the word Sheol, which is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek Hades, and Saul, which was the name of the first Israelite king, are spelled alike in Paleo-Hebrew, in, in Old Hebrew letters, which uses no diacritical mark, marks. We found, the, we found we, the liar. We found the deceiver. It's the first Israelite king, King Saul. There well, well right. Exactly. And, and at least in, uh, on many occasions in the Hebrew, which we know today, these words are spelled alike. There, there were, according to Strong's Recordance, two spellings for, for the word Sheol, which is Hebrew number 75 85 and it's um it 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 would reading right to left it would be spelled sh and and then the a left and and then the vav what which can also be a like a w instead of a v and, and then the l or it could be just spelled without the vav sh a l a being the a left saul is spelled S-H, A for Aleph, Vav, and L. And, and that's one of the two ways that Sheol is spelled. Now, now Strong's defines the word Sheol. He says it's from, from 7592, Hades, or the, or the world of the dead. And Saul, the word Saul, Strong's defines as a passive participle of 7592, and, and it's a verb, and it means ask. It's a verb in, in the passive participle form, and it means asked, A-S-K-E-D, in, in inquired, in other words. And he says that it's Saul, and it's the name of an Edomite and two Israelites in, in the Old Testament. So we see that both of these words, that they're not equivalent to one another. They are both derived, according to Strong's, from this word at number 7592, and that word at 7592 is shall. S-H-A apostrophe A-L. I really believe it's the root of our English word shall, S-H-A-L-L. And, and it's spelled S-H-A-L in Hebrew, in, in Paleo-Hebrew, three letters, the, the shin, the aleph, and, and the, the, um, the L, and the lamed, I think it's called, or something like that. And this is exactly how the alternative form of sheol is spelled, shall, and Strong's defines this word shall, which is the parent of both Sheol and the word for Saul's name, as a primitive root meaning to inquire, and by implication to request. So, so that's where we get the word Saul from. It doesn't come from Sheol. Sheol and Saul both come from this other word, which is the root word. So we see that Sheol, not only are Sheol and Saul spelled-like, but both words are derived from shall, and sometimes they were spelled-like, not all the time. But that doesn't mean that the words are interchangeable. Wherever doing such may offer us a convenient interpretation, because Hebrew had no proper vowels, many words were spelled identically, and nearly every Hebrew name, if not every name, is also a word with a meaning in the Hebrew language. That doesn't mean we could just exchange the names for those words. Imagine the confusion in English with words such as fan, fan, thin, fine, fun, and fauna. 
take out the vowels, and we have six, seven words that are alike that all are spelled F-N. How about gam, game, jam, gum, and jim? G-Y-M, G-U-M, G-E-M, G-A-M-E, and G-A-M. That they all have totally different meanings. Take out the vowels. They're all G-M. If we had no vowels. Douglas could find, in, in his manner of interpretation, he could find thousands of word substitution games to play in the Bible by doing that, right? Let's look at Habakkuk 2.5 one more time from the King James Version. It says, yeah. Also, because... He transgresses by wine. He is a proud man, neither keeps at home, who enlarges his desire as hell and is as death and cannot be satisfied, but gathers unto himself all nations and heaps unto himself all people. It is obvious that the proud man, and no one in particular, is compared to hell and death and not to Saul and death. That interpretation is totally out of context. I'm going to read the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition, um, Volume 1, page 17, from the pressure to Habakkuk, from this very thing that Douglas claims to be quoting, right? It's um, 1QP Habakkuk, Column 8, where the Qumran set comments upon Habakkuk Chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. This is what we have. They say, quote, Surely the wealth will corrupt the boaster, and not will he last, he who widens his throat like the abyss, and he, like death, cannot be satisfied. All the peoples ally against him. All the nations come together against him. Now, is this pressure to Habakkuk, as Douglas claims, really describing Paul of Tarsus? Can we take the abyss and substitute Paul here? Because in the Hebrew, that's the word Sheol, and would it make sense to do that? Or is Clayton Douglas misquoting the Dead Sea Scrolls and weaving a web of deceit? Well, he even said in his quote that in order to build his city, Paul didn't build a city. No, Paul didn't build the city. That, 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 this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous to read the actual pressure to Habakkuk from the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and, and see what Clayton Douglas is trying to make of it, and, and, and you can't make that of it. No sleight-of-hand magic trick is too risky for Clayton Douglas to attempt, but this just doesn't wash. Douglas quotes from the Habakkuk pressure interpretation of Habakkuk 2.4, but the word Sheol does not appear in Habakkuk 2.4. The word Sheol only appears in Habakkuk 2.5. Douglas is trying to pull off a bait and switch. Like a good Jew, he'll go to any length to misrepresent Paul and discredit Christianity in the process. It, it's, I, I don't, this is totally dishonest. It's absolutely dishonest. Well, why wouldn't he misquote the Dead Sea Scrolls? He's misquoted everything else. It's more of the same. I mean, what can we say? This is a novel. It's a poorly worded novel. The grammar is atrocious. For all we know, Clay Douglas is the liar that we're, we're being warned about in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, well I've asked the Paul Bashers throughout these 19 episodes to um, 
to come up with something better if they have it, and, and I'll discuss it here on these programs. We we, we could um, I'll share it with you, and, and and we could discuss the substance of the accusations here on these programs. I haven't. I've had one person, a third party, one listener, has sent me a YouTube and, and a podcast of of this Scott McQuaid asking that 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 I address it. I haven't even listened yet, but I will. I will listen and, and I will address it hopefully later this spring as we wind up this series of Douglas's articles and move on to something else. Perhaps um, the, depending on the substance of, of that Paul bashing material, I don't know if it's going to, how much of a program it's going to take. If it's not going to take long to address, I'll, I'll address it and, and perhaps address it in concert with some of the W.G. Finlay material or some of the other Paul bashing material that we should address sometime this year. But, but um, it, it's, I haven't, not, not one Paul basher, and, and I know they're listening. I know Ralph Daigle is listening. I know he still reads my mailing lists. I see who opens up my emails when I send out my Saxon messengers and things like that. Uh, I got pretty sophisticated software. It, it's, um, I know which Paul bashers are listening to me and which ones probably couldn't care less. But I know who listens, and not one Paul Basher has actually said, okay, Fink, I got this for you. What about this and this and this and this? Send me your points, or, or just stop bashing Paul of Tarsus, because you sure as hell aren't doing Christians in general, and identity Christians in particular, any service with, with, with your subterfuge. And that's all I have to say about that. Well, I guess we could have some of these clowns on and debate them, but we might have to lay down some ground rules. No appealing to Jewish magicians as authorities. <laughs> that, 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 that's ground rule number one. Right. Ground rule number two, no calling Paul a Bolshevik. And, and ground, number three well, ground rule number one should be doing some listening as well as some speaking. Jerry Kirk, the Paul basher, turned out to be a real clown, came in my chat room and tried to spew out a never-ending—I'm <coughs> sorry—a never-ending list of charges against Paul, and wouldn't even take a breath in between. I think the guy had an oxygen hose up his ass because he didn't need oxygen. He didn't have to stop to breathe. He, he tried giving me this 10-15-minute diatribe. He wouldn't let me interject one comment, and I ended up—I ended up belittling him and tossing his ass from my chat server. But it was bad. It, 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 was, very, um, it, it was very unseemly. I, I tried to handle one accusation at a time. I'm like, slow down. He didn't want to hear it. He just wanted to try to roll me over like a steamroller. I wasn't going to let that happen, especially on my own chat server. That, that was very um, That's uncivil. Jewish. It, it, was, it was Jewish. It was extremely uncivil of him. Jerry Kirk is a clown. If he ever wants to debate me point by point, I will sit and have a discussion with him. But right. I'm not going to allow some clown to read off this never-ending list of indictments and, and just, you know, he was worse than a government prosecutor, and I've been through that too. Well, if someone has a point-by-point point list that they want to present against Paul, they state point one then they go quiet while you answer point one. Then they might have a follow-up to your answer, and then you, you answer their follow-up, and then he moves on to point two. If he's just going to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
I would just cut his ass off because you can't have a discussion like that. Well, well, right. And I let him get to 10 or 12, and I had enough of it, right? He just wouldn't listen to anything. I, I wanted to go back to point one and and, and address it, and, and he just wanted to keep running like, like he was the only authority who ever opened his mouth about the Scripture. Um, I'm not going to put up with that. I mean, that's ridiculous. Okay, thank you for joining me. I will be here, um, Yahweh willing, I'll be here next Friday with the second part of Acts chapter 2. And oh. Saturday, we'll, we'll leave next Saturday open. I, I have a few other ideas, and, and I know you do too, and, and maybe we'll present something else and take a break from the Paul bashing for a minute and um, let people regain their composure, because I know that a lot of them think that this stuff is pretty funny. But but it has to be addressed. I mean, I, I know a lot of the, the, the um, Clayton Douglas material is, it, it borders on ridiculous, but it has to be addressed. It, it, it doesn't just, border on ridiculous. It's so far gone over the border, you need a telescope to see it. Well, well I'm trying to be nice, right? Well, I, I can't be nice to this clown. Maybe when we started, I could take him seriously, but... A deserter from a Roman legion, a Bolshevik, a thief. <laughs> uh, it's 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 over. The, the the gloves are off. I can't be nice to the guy. He's a jackass and a clown. He's a falsifier of history. He's the Bolshevik. Well, well, I would agree. Praise Yahweh and good night. Now see Praise you. Yahweh. Friday. Good night.